PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites. Archive, distribute, and display your photos in a flash-free, responsive website. Try one for free for 14 days at PhotoShelter.com. Get our latest educational guides for free. PhotoShelter.com slash resources. Hey everyone in Photo Loverland, this is Alan Murabayashi broadcasting to you live from Photo Shelter World Headquarters. You are listening to the Serial Podcast. No, this is actually I Love Photography Live, unfortunately. <laughs> um, no, I mean that. I no, I love Serial. Sarah, you're not watching Serial. I'm not. I'm not listening, listening. to Serial. I'm not. I, but I will tune in. I have to. Everyone's raving about it. Are all the rage now? I do too. This is yes. Well, anyway, we talk about <laughs> photography, except for last week when we talk about some other stuff. But uh, this week we're talking about photography uh, wholeheartedly. You might be watching us uh, through our YouTube uh, station on youtube.com slash photoshelter, or you might be listening to the podcast by going to iTunes and downloading I Love Photography and subscribing to our podcast so you can get this every week. There's no slate analysis of I Love Photography podcast either, unfortunately. But we will talk about photography, and you can find all the links that we're talking about today at our blog on blog.photoshelter.com. And let's get straight to it. In the past 48 hours, Sarah, uh, a big announcement coming out of the Peter Lick camp that he sold the world's most expensive photo at $6.5 million. I want to start a slow clap for that. <laughs> a number so large that it's hard to believe. Right, exactly. <laughs> A number so large that it outpaced the previous title holder, uh, Gursky's Rhine 2. Gursky, uh, of course, sells his images on the public market, and therefore there's a public record of uh, who purchased it, or someone, someone can verify that uh, the image was purchased for a, a certain amount. Peter Lick, by contrast, uh, previously had the number one highest grossing image of all time in 2007 or, or thereabouts. He sold an image for a cool million dollars back then and then was quickly outpaced by the likes of Cindy Sherman mm. and Andreas Gursky and, and a few others. So then he was like number eight. And then all of a sudden he outprices Gursky by $2.2 million. So I wrote a little uh, post here about basically how this was not credible <laughs> when oh, you get can, down to it. This cannot be true. <laughs> this cannot be true. Um, and, and what I want to say about this is I don't think that anyone is begrudging success. I, I certainly never begrudge someone's success because I, I know how fleeting success can be and I know how, how uh, aligned the stars must be for people to be very successful. What I do begrudge in this case, and it's not a case of jealousy because I don't really care. What, what I do begrudge is if he is not being, if someone is doing something illegal or someone is doing something not ethical to put them into a position of quote success, then I think it's unfair and I think it's BS. In this case, there's been speculation about Lick in the past, none, none of which she's refuted or said or commented on to the extent that I know. So, I mean, who knows, right? There's been speculation that his investors will go and, quote, anonymously buy these images um, to generate marketing, publicity, 
pro uh, prop up the prices of his prints, get more foot traffic into the gallery. This is the reason why I don't think it's credible. First of all, you have a guy whose image is not unique. The image in question that sold for $6.5 million is a black and white conversion of an image that he had been already selling. So strictly from the uniqueness standpoint, uh, which is one of the parameters of how art photography is valued, it, it fails that criteria. Number one thing. Number one thing. It's not unique. There's literally, he sells them in two editions, two quote limited editions, 950 copies of this thing, of the color version. Mm -hmm. So immediately there's that problem. Number two, can you think of anything, anything in real life where suddenly the price effectively goes up by $2 million? Uh, $2 million, no. <laughs> right. And, I was going to say, I mean, gas prices go up. Yeah, but this is like a 50-ish percent increase over the previous price, right? right? And it's one thing to say, you can say, well, okay, but, you know, you look at Christie's or Sotheby's and, and they, they will sell a, a Picasso, you know, a sketch that Picasso did for $40 million. And people will say, well, I can't believe somebody paid $40 million for that. But nobody's ever going to, uh, you know, uh, chuckle and snort at the fact that somebody acquired a Picasso. Right. Because that, there's provenance. Picasso's like a, a real deal. He influenced the art world. He changed the direction of, of art. But if you told someone, oh, hey, man, I, I bought that lick photo for $6.5 million, <laughs> you'd be laughed at. <laughs> yeah, you would. It's a ridiculous, ridiculous thing for, any, for, for me to believe, unless there's proof in some form or fashion that this is anything except a marketing thing. So I was thinking speculatively, of course, we don't, we don't know anything. Um, that it could be an investor that says, I'm going to, I'm going to infuse your business with $6 million so that you can expand the number of galleries you have or whatnot. And in exchange for that, you will give me a print. That could be one scenario where there was actually a, a financial transaction in place, but where the, the nature of the transaction is sort of obfuscated. And I just think people are, are very skeptical nowadays. And people question when, you know, when, when their bullshit meter goes off, they're going to say, eh, something doesn't feel right about this, and this does not feel right. Right. The Guardian wrote about this uh, as well, and it was a pretty tough, tough review. I didn't agree with everything they had to say, but one thing that they did say was, if this is the most valuable fine art photograph in history, God help fine art photography. <laughs> yeah, and clearly nobody thinks of Peter Luke is fine art photography. Right. No, nobody. This is, this is the, the other thing is, you know, Sarah, we know a lot of photographers, being, you know, a part of the industry for so long and being, yeah, having a service that, that helps photographers. I don't know anyone who actually knows Peter Lick. I've never heard his name. Never. So that just, that increases the mystery surrounding kind of the cult of personality that he's created. And again, I think masterful marketer, I think really crappy photographer. And I feel badly when I walk by, by his gallery in Soho and I see people in there because I know I have friends who've gone in there and, and uh, witness kind of the very aggressive sales techniques that they're using. Uh, and I look at the photos and I'm like, that just really, I can give you 10 photographers who've had better pictures of these things mm. just off the top of my head without even doing any research. See, I, I have not seen the gallery and I don't plan on stopping in. <laughs> yeah. You're not missing anything. <laughs> 
So uh, the post, which will be on our blog, is called the most expensive uh, photo in the world or the best marketing stunt. There you go. Uh, Gary Fong is back in the news. Um, you might know him as the creator of the, uh, what does he call that thing? The, the light globe or something like that. I don't know. Uh, the Gary Fong. GaryFong.com. Anyway, you know, a lot of wedding photographers use this contraption that you're seeing on the top of a flash because it's a nice diffuser and it bounces off the ceiling and it, it really is a nice light. Anyway, this isn't about that. Uh, this is about the fact that Gary Fong um, posted on Petapixel about his friend, Nelson Tang, who's a, a part-time wedding photographer. Nelson was sued by the husband of a, quote, friend um, for taking bad wedding photography, uh, bad wedding photos. And the, the, the gentleman who sued him, the, the groom, uh, is a lawyer. We saw a few days ago, Sarah, the Harvard law professor who threatened legal action against a small business owner uh, at a Chinese food restaurant for overcharging him $4. Uh, yes. <laughs> and the outrage over, why are you bullying this guy? He, he offered to compensate you for the difference, not only the difference, but like to pay you more for the inconvenience. <laughs> You know, and he made uh, amends to fix the pricing on the online menu, et cetera, et cetera. So what, and in the court of public opinion, the, the Harvard law professor didn't do very well because nobody likes to see the little guy get bullied on a spurious thing. And here was another spurious case where Nelson Tang uh, was being sued for a lot of money for allegedly taking really bad photos. So Nelson contacted Gary. Nelson uh, doesn't know anything about the laws insofar as we know. And Gary said, you know what, this is ridiculous. So Gary threw together uh, a fund to help Nelson and got some legal uh, advice, et cetera, thrown together, which I think was a great outpouring of support from the industry. Yeah, they raised over $4,000 for, for Nelson. Yeah, amazing. So he's awesome. being sued for $300,000. Gary goes in uh, as an expert witness. Another guy goes in as an expert witness to say, these photos are great. There's nothing wrong with these photos. Um, and the other thing about yeah, that it that was, was that was what I was most interested in. I was yeah. like, well, what is you know what does Gary think of these pictures? Are they actually kind of bad? And he's like, no, they're great photos. He did Nelson did absolutely nothing wrong. And the bride and groom posted them to social media. Yeah, and so, everybody commented, hey, love the photos. You guys look beautiful, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Well, needless to say, the the lawsuit was dropped. Thank God. Thank God. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the kicker is the guy that sued, <laughs> the guy that sued Tang, his last name is Poon. So this was a case, where, where is that? Uh, the very last sentence. The very last sentence. The greatest case name in the history of the world, Poon v. Tang. <laughs> Poon Tang. Poon Tang case. <laughs> we love it. If you don't get it, go to UrbanDictionary.com. <laughs> yeah, man, but you got to know that. You got to know that kind of stuff. You got to be hip. Talk like the kids and know what the kids are saying. That's true. I don't know who's listening. I don't know who's on the other end. <laughs> <laughs> so kudos to Gary Fong for helping out the industry. Nelson Tang, all right. Yeah, that's some good karma points right there. That's great karma points. We like to go to Vice. Yeah. They do a lot of cutting edge reporting. They do, and they and they showcase a lot of really cool up and coming photography as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here is a piece you found. 
Yeah, yeah. So the photo editor advice, um, Matthew Lafite. How would you pronounce that? Last yeah, name. that's that's as good as any pronunciation <laughs> I could come up with. Um, he found a great spot next to the Freedom Tower, or the One World Trade. Yeah, we don't call it Freedom Tower. Okay, sorry. The One World Trade, um, where the light bounces perfectly off at a certain hour and onto the spectators that are just looking up. And he noticed how many people are passing by just looking up at this massive building. And he started snapping photos of all of them, and he gathered a great collection of all these people in awe, just looking looking straight up. My neck hurts just looking at these. Everybody's <laughs> this is a great one. Yeah, I love, I love this one. It's just very, it, you know, it has like a snapshot feel. It's not perfect. You know, it's just kind of like, here's a collection of, of all these people just, what? <laughs> so here's my feedback on these images. Okay, go ahead. I love the concept. Yeah. I love, I love the concept. I love this idea of going, again, into your backyard and coming up with a concept and then going out and shooting it. My problem is that the photos aren't that great. They're not... They're not particularly uniform, number one, because what he's doing is he'll take an image. Uh, let me find one here. He'll take an image like this. This is taken with a camera. Uh, there might have been some cropping, but there's no, he's not blowing up pixels. He's not cropping so excessively that you start to see noise and, quote, grain and, and whatnot. Right, right. Whereas an image like this, it's not like a huge telephoto lens. He's it's, cropping in. He's cropped. He's cropped really tight, and the image quality suffers as a result of it. So, uh, you know, I, see your point. I, I just feel so. So then the question I had was okay, Alan, well, if you were going to do it, what are you going to walk in there with a huge uh, zoom lens? And the answer is no, because you'd immediately be flagged by security. Right. Right. Yeah. You just can't, you can't walk in with a huge zoom lens. So that, that, that's probably part of the calculus that went on uh, in his head when he's shooting these scenes. But then I say, you know what? Street photographers have been dealing with this since the advent of street photography. And, and, and there's a way to sort of be discreet and either have, you know, the Leica or the mirrorless around your neck. And you, and you move towards people that, that you're identifying and then you take the picture. And I know that it's difficult. Like he's spotting people in the crowd and then he can't just like run up and then try to be low key and stealth about it. But that's kind of the deal. Like you got to commit to the project, right? <laughs> Yeah. All right. I see your point. They're not all consistent. So this is a this is a uh, an idea and a project idea that I would love to see him continue. Like every time it's nice weather and the lights out, Matt get out there and shoot. Now, of course, he's a full time job. He's a photo editor. Yeah. But I don't care. Go out and <laughs> go out and do it. I don't care. It 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 reminded me. You know, it feels unfinished to me, and it reminded me a lot of One Direction dads. Oh, okay. Another great concept, and for those of you who haven't seen it, we talked about One Direction Dads uh, a few months ago, and it was a photographer, actually a series of photographers, who had <laughs> gone out and taken photos of dads at One Direction concerts with their daughters, looking just, just bored out of their minds. Just miserable. As miserable. Hell. <laughs> but it felt unfinished because there was a lot more work to be done, and I feel the same about this essay. Great concept. Got to work it a little bit more. Okay. All right. Uh, Do it, Matt. <laughs> little photo critique. I love photography. Keep doing it, Matt. We we love uh, Haley Morris uh, Cafiero and her project Weight Watchers. Yeah. And you found that she was doing a little Kickstarter project. Yeah, I found it. I think 
it would have been it had like one more day left and she was already past her goal which is so so awesome she's awesome. putting putting together a book from her series weight watchers where uh she's been taking self portraits and seeing within the within the frame how people around her are reacting to her and looking at her and gaze, judging basically judging her and what what that all means they're very complex self portraits they're they're awesome i'm so happy that she got to her goal yeah and as if the nypd needed any more negative press right now right you know, there's this very very telling photo i mean these guys don't obviously represent the body of all the nypd officers of course there, not. but of course not. it's just an unfortunate photo where like in every other photo she's basically being made fun of yeah pointed at for being obese yeah and she's obese as a result of a thyroid problem if i'm remembering correctly yeah it's not like she can't control herself and she's a glutton right <laughs> at any rate, so she raised uh, $24,297, exceeding her goal of $15,000 to produce a book. And the book is going to be published by, what was it, Magenta? Yeah, Magenta. Magenta out of uh, Canada. Who do, they do great work and they run a photo festival. Um, In Boston. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. So super happy to see uh, a book project come together. I love the fact that crowdfunding is being used uh, in photography frequently for book projects. That to me is sort of a great, it's a great way to fund it. It's also a great way to gauge interest mm -hmm. in your book. True. We've seen a lot of great books come out of yeah. crowdfunding this past year. And Scott Strizanti has uh, his common ground book that finally came out. Yep. Um, Mossless. Mossless yeah. had one this year. Yeah. Lots of good stuff. I, and even Aperture used, used Kickstarter. So Kickstarter. Kickstarter. <laughs> Long-time Magnum photographer uh, Larry Tal uh, has a new book about Afghanistan out, and Jim Estrin from the New York Times Lens Blog interviewed Larry about his work and why he went back. Uh, you know, he, he went back not as an embedded photojournalist. Right. And I thought a lot about, you know, back in the day in the Iraq war, we talked a lot, or we being the collective industry of photojournalists and journalists and pundits of journalism talked about what it meant to be an embedded photographer or embedded journalist and how that could potentially skew the way that you record the events because you are being shown things that effectively the government wants you to see or someone in the government wants you to see. And Larry says, you can't, you're not going to find stuff that way. You're, you're, and, and as a journalist, you have kind of a responsibility to go, go beyond that. And I, I think about that. It, it, it's a funny argument because I think that for the average person, the average consumer who's going through their day, consuming news through whatever, whatever uh, medium that they get it through, whether it's, you know, the Daily Show, Fox News, uh, op-eds, their, their news feed, Facebook news feed. It, it's a very abstract thing to say, oh, oh yeah, like the, the difference in coverage is going to be so different between the embed and the guy that goes out on his own. And then you read about situations, as we've seen with the torture stuff that came out yesterday, and with uh, Edward Snowden and all this stuff, you see the overreach by the government and then you kind of understand, okay, we need, we need people that are actually 
independently looking at a situation. So it was just a very insightful piece, I thought. Here's a guy who's been in the industry for decades and has really thought about what photojournalism means and what happens in these places that that lose uh, the public's interest and the public's mind share, like Afghanistan. Like, we never talk about Afghanistan anymore. Right. Um, and that thing's been going on, well, it's been going on for centuries, so... And, and now this work is coming out in a book published by Aperture. So he's able to have a lot of control about which images are coming out and being, being seen, which is great. Yeah, and the guy's a great photographer. I mean, a really great photographer. And he's got some of these are uh, uh, panoramics. Um, and I tried to use a panoramic camera a long time ago. Man, it was hard. <laughs> Just to be able to see... The, the frame edge to edge. I mean, you really have to, you really have to be looking to get nice photos. Um, but so uh, this is definitely uh, an interview. It's not very long that I would uh, suggest that a lot of people take a look at over on the lens blog. And again, all the links that we're talking about today can be found on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. But Larry, kudos to you and your work and uh, look forward to seeing the book called Afghanistan. We talked about uh, the events in Ferguson. We've talked about the events in Staten Island. Um, last week, uh, we also mentioned how body cameras uh, were going to be installed uh, in many different departments. And the government has funded or committed funds to getting uh, many more body cameras on police officers. Here's a little piece in The Atlantic, 10 predictions about police body cameras and the analogy that the author Robinson Meyer uses is how dash cams were installed on cop cars um, starting about 20 years ago. And how many of the same issues that they talked about then, issues that they thought would be resolved or clarified by the use of uh, dash cams, weren't necessarily solved by the dash cams. In some cases, they were. In some cases, they weren't. And in this piece, he talks about how even uh, before dash cams, in the, in the era of surveillance where tapes were often kept, videotapes, VHS tapes were kept uh, in police evidence rooms and lockers, how a, a, a noticeable percentage of them had been degaussed. Like police would go in there with a magnet and purposely try to destroy the data that's on the tapes. It's a really, really insightful piece on, uh, on how we might think that the body cams are sort of a, a panacea for all of these woes. But we know already from the Gardner case, as we talked about last week, right. in, in the face of photographic evidence, it didn't really sway the outcome. Well, it did. That's obviously a biased uh, statement. It didn't, it didn't, uh, lead to an uh, indictment of the officer, whereas many people who watched it thought this was sort of a, 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 a shut, a close and shut case of police overreach and the guy has to be indicted on something and, and he wasn't. Right. And it seems like with, with dash cams, there were a lot of high hopes, just like there are with, you know, with possible 
body cams on cops. And it's pretty, it's kind of sad actually to read through this and be like, you know, it didn't change that much. And especially the, one of the last points, number nine, is that you know, dash cams didn't really stop racial profiling. So why would body cams do that too? It's kind of yeah. pretty devastating. You know, I think it starts with one of the, I think it was number two, where they talk about there's just going to be a mountain of data and a lot of it is going to be boring. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like day-to-day -day stuff, nothing interesting. So even to identify patterns of racial profiling, someone, someone or a computer is going to have to go through all of this data and say, okay, well, on the body cam, we're seeing lots of black people being stopped. So maybe, you know, as a, as a ratio of black stops versus white stops. Somebody's got to comb through all of that data for, for it to be any, of any use from a, from a pattern perspective. Right. Now, from a... From case a, to case. Yeah, on a case to case basis, it could be interesting, but the, the cop still has to turn on the body cam. And they pointed out with the dash cam scenario, a lot of cops would disable the audio on the dash cams. So it's not, again, we, we, we're committing a lot of money to this. I think uh, it's hundreds of millions of dollars to this to outfit body cams. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I think it's one of many different uh, changes and reforms that happen and that need to happen in order to make uh, the cops, the bad cops behave better in the future. Hopefully. Hopefully. hopefully so. This hopefully. is some big brother stuff. But again, like a really great article to read. And we talk a lot about uh, photography and culture and what it means and how photography can influence culture, influence behavior, change perceptions, change stereotypes, et cetera. And, and I think this is a really interesting case of that. Um, so I would suggest everyone Absolutely. And hop over there. For, hopefully for the better. Hopefully for the better. We will see. Time will tell. It'd be interesting to have this conversation in a decade to see what's up. Yeah. Uh, it is the holiday season, Sarah. Black Friday's come and gone. We're deep into the, the Christmas holiday season. We have Hanukkah coming up next week. Um, and, of course, one of the mainstays of the holiday season is taking your kid to the mall <laughs> and getting a photo with Santa. <laughs> Did you ever do this, Alan? Mm, maybe. Yeah, I think maybe once when I was a kid. Okay. Maybe I've not. Time. I've never done it. Yeah, you're not. You're not American. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> uh, Paul Pruitt is a photographer in Delaware, and he has something called the Santa Experience. And what he does is instead of the typical Santa sitting on a chair and your kid goes on Santa's lap and then you take a, a portrait with Santa, the Santa Experience consists of more uh, staged narratives, if you will, and then Paul kind of shoots them. Uh, almost in a photojournalistic style. And the images are really great. Look at this one. He's pointing at it. Go look at the candy canes and the cookies and the milk and the little <laughs> girls taking it. And really shallow depth of field, really well composed, nicely lit. Yeah, these are so much more fun than just so the kids looking miserable and scared on Santa's lap. <laughs> I was thinking about this in the context of building your photography business and being really creative. And, you know, just when you think that the Santa portrait, which I never really think about, you think the Santa portrait is, is it is what it is, and it's not going to evolve, then Paul comes along and he really changes it up. And he's creating value. 
this is like his concept. He he's really thought about it. He's executed it with uh, perfection, and he's he's getting press as a result of it. Yeah, props and, to Paul. Yeah, I, I I challenge photographers out there who are doing the same thing over and over again, like senior portraits. You know, this year we saw the laser cats. Yes. Uh, senior portraits. <laughs> Yes. And yeah, it was the kid's idea to do it, but it was still, you know, this is my spin on the senior portrait. And it made uh, photography fun and not boring. Yay. Don't we want <laughs> photography to be fun sometimes? Yes, we do. Outside of the photojournalism heavy stuff, we need we need things like Paul Pruitt. Paul doing Pruitt. Doing Santa Experience, yeah. Yeah, Santa Experience. <laughs> Check that one out. Really, really great photos. Paul, you're the man. Sarah, this might be the uh, the shortest show in the history of Isle of Photography. I think it is, yeah. The least number of topics and the shortest show, which I think after last week is probably probably good. Probably a good thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we only have, what, I think two more shows before uh, Christmas and then three more shows till the end of the year. It's kind of amazing how quickly time flies. Yeah. Um, hey, everyone out there in California who's experiencing the Pineapple Express storms, stay safe. Try to stay dry, but I know you guys need some rain out there anyway, so uh, get those water buckets out there and fill up that groundwater. Um, but uh, Sarah, have a great weekend. Thank you, Alan. You too. For Sarah, this is Alan Murabayashi signing off. We'll see you next week on Isle of Photography. Bye-bye.